Engaging presentations on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. What between a great ocean and a vast wilderness, it was home to an incredible people with a revolutionary idea that they could rule themselves, that they could chart their own destiny, and that together they could light up the entire world. The most prominent pro-life leaders in the world, originally from New York, ordained in 1988 by Cardinal John O'Connor. In 1993, he requested and received permission to devote his entire life and ministry to ending abortion. With his bishop's permission, he serves as the National Director of Priests for Life, the largest pro-life ministry in the Catholic Church. He is also president of the National Pro-Life Religious Council and the National Pastoral Director of the Silent No More Awareness Campaign and Rachel's Vineyard, the world's largest ministry of healing after abortion. He travels throughout the country to, event average, to the average of four states every week preaching and teaching against abortion. He broadcasts daily to hundreds of thousands of people on television, radio, and online programs. Mother Teresa asked him to speak in India on life issues. The Vatican appointed him to the Pontifical Academy for Life and to the Pontifical Council for the Family to help coordinate pro-life activities of the Catholic Church. Members of Congress have invited him to address the pro-life caucus and to preach at the prayer service they had in the Capitol just prior to the vote on healthcare reform. In 2016, he was asked by then-candidate Donald Trump to serve on his pro-life and Catholic advisory councils. He was present at the bedside of Terry Schiavo as she was dying and was an outspoken advocate for her life. He received the Proudly Pro-Life Award by National Right to Life Committee and numerous other pro-life awards and honorary doctorates. His work has been praised by presidents, popes, and countless citizens. He is the author of four books, Ending Abortion, Not Just Fighting It, Pro-Life Reflections for Every Day, abolishing abortion, and proclaiming the message of life. And uh, Norma McCorvey, the Jane Roe in the U.S. Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade abortion decision, called Father Frank the catalyst that brought me into the Catholic Church. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce Father Frank. Thanks so much. Thank you. Brian, thank you very much, uh, not only for that introduction, but for all that you do here, and all of you on, on the board, and all of you who are participating in the uh, Lex Vitae. We have encountered each other before, haven't we? I know we did a, uh, a, a Zoom call during the pandemic lockdowns, and uh, isn't, it, isn't it great to see these lockdowns going away, right? The last domino to fall, and I know it well, is the, what you have to go through in the airports and on the airplanes. But that's going away. In a few more weeks, that's going to be gone as well. So praise God. He's getting us out of this, uh, this strange chapter of our history and of our lives that we have lived through. But in the midst of that, we did a Zoom call together. I have been here before on the campus, of course. And uh, it has always been such a positive and encouraging experience. Monsignor, thanks for the kind and encouraging words uh, in, uh, in, uh, earlier in the evening. I've known Dr. Skarnickia for many, many, many years. We have worked together 
uh, and will continue to do so, uh, especially in terms of developing curricular material regarding the pro-life movement. That's such, that's always been to me such an important task because we are building the future. We are building the understanding that people have of these issues, the bases for our position, both by natural reason and by divine revelation, and also the practical tools. What do we do about this? That for me as director of Priests for Life has been an interesting thing to observe, by the way, because things have changed over the years in the makeup of the clergy relative to this issue. It's one thing to know the teaching of the church on abortion. And from day one of my work with Priests for Life, now it's coming on 30 years ago, I always found that priests knew and understood the church's teaching on abortion. But to know the teaching and even to articulate is a very different and distinct set of skills from engaging in a cultural battle. Not every priest that, especially again 30 years ago, who knew and, and preached about about the church's teaching on abortion grew up with this battle raging. The, the clergy who have been ordained now over the last uh, 20 years or so, I mean, they grew up in the pro-life movement. They, 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 they were at their parents' side praying in front of the killing centers. They were on the march for life. They saw all this happening and unfolding. And aside from knowing the teaching, they are not afraid to engage in the battle, not that, not that those before them were by definition afraid, by no means. But again, it's a different set of skills. So we are obviously here tonight to recommit ourselves to that, to that battle. So it's a delight to be here. Now, let me begin. I, I want to talk about some of the developments in the pro-life movement, especially as they would relate to the studies that you're engaged in in the law and how in particular those who are becoming practitioners of the law uh, can help the movement. There are a number of ways that I want to delve into related to current developments in the movement. But let me begin also by commenting on the, on the incident that Ryan brought up because I've been involved in this over the last week or so, uh, these developments with the babies being found in uh, Washington. Pro-life advocates did, uh, a little over a week ago, what pro-life advocates have done throughout the decades, rescued the bodies of these babies. As we know, in our teaching, in our Christian anthropology, we are as much the body of our soul as we are the soul of our body. The body is not less personal than the soul. So these bodies are sacred. Even though these babies have died, this is the body of a person. And we honor the body. The abortion industry dishonors the body. And the violence they commit against the bodies of these babies is done in secret. We need to bring it into the light. Now, some decades ago, the partial birth abortion controversy arose in America because of a medical paper done by a Dr. Martin Haskell from Ohio. During that controversy, this was in the uh, mid-90s, I spoke to Haskell. 
and a few times. And I said, uh, I said, Doctor Haskell, I gotta really, I gotta ask you, how do you, how do you justify doing this? You, you know that this is a baby. How do you do a procedure that is? And then I showed him that I knew exactly how the procedure was done. I read, studied his paper myself. In fact, one time during those years, you know, we would read. We in the pro-life, uh, we would do this full time. We've got to read the, 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 the textbooks of these abortionists. So I was on a plane one time, I had Warren Hearn's textbook, Abortion Practice, in my hands. I was reading it on the plane, I was standing there in the aisle now, ready to get off the plane, and I got the book in my hand. So there was a guy standing next to me, he sees me dressed like this, he sees a book that says Abortion Practice. I, I saw it, looking at the book, looking at me, looking at the book. <laughs> so I turned around and started talking to him, explain why I had a book about how to do abortion. But we, we read this stuff and I talked to Haskell and I described the procedure and I said, you know, how, how do you justify doing this? Father, he said, I don't know when the baby receives a soul. So I said, so what? First of all, the amazing thing was here am I here I am a priest talking to a doctor about a, a medical procedure, and the doctor's talking to me about souls. I mean, you'd think it'd be the other way around. These abortionists are too spiritual. They over-spiritualize the whole thing. I said to him, This is not about souls. If you don't, first of all, if you don't know when the baby receives a soul, how do you know that the newborn has a soul? Does that make it okay to kill the newborn? Just because you're not sure if he has a soul. It's not what the law is about. The law is not making you believe something about the person that it's protecting. It's telling you that no matter what you believe, you can't lay hands on that body. I said, doctor, the key thing is not that the baby has a soul. It's that the baby has a body. You're destroying the body. You're destroying the person. But I spoke to this man and, and to many, many, many other abortionists as well. The reality of the body wakes people up. The activists in DC last week, praying out in front of and protesting out in front of the abortion facility, saw the truck come up to take the bodies of these babies. And the, you know, driver goes inside, gets however many boxes there are, brings them out, puts them in the truck. I have blessed in different parts of the country. I have stood at the back of these trucks with the, 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 the door open, seeing the thing full of boxes. I have conducted blessings there while praying at abortion facilities when these trucks arrived. And these activists did something a step further. They went up to the man and they said, do you know what's in those boxes? And he didn't know. And they told him. And he was horrified. And then they said, and this, brothers and sisters, see and feel the Christian spirit from across the centuries rising up in the next thing they said. And one of them who was saying it is an atheist. The other one is Lauren, our friend. I've known her too for, for years, Lauren Handy. The two of these women standing there, one an atheist, say to this man, may we have one of those boxes? What are you going to do with it? We want to give them a proper burial. 
the driver said, well, I've already checked in these boxes and I'm just gonna look the other way. And if you wanna take one of them, I'm just gonna look the other way. And they took the box. On Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, you're going to hear a lot more of what was in those boxes. A little bit of it has been released. There's a long story behind what's going on here. In fact, you heard, you overheard me talking in the car ride. I was on the phone with people in DC about this whole situation. It's complicated actually, and a lot more is going to come out about it, a lot more. But as Ryan said, look at the, uh, look at the pictures. In fact, we have a website called lookatabortion.org. And consistent with what you were saying and what we were talking about before, I've always been quoted as saying, America will not reject abortion until America sees abortion. These babies are killed under cover of darkness. The other side doesn't want society to see what the body of an unborn baby looks like, and much less than do they want them to see what abortion does to that body. But we need to see it, we need to show it, just like we show other injustices. You look at injustices across the centuries, they flourish when the victims are invisible, when the victims are hidden. Those who do the works of darkness want to cover that evil in darkness. But Paul says in Ephesians 5.11, have nothing to do with the fruitless works of darkness, but rather, what does he say? Expose them. Expose them. So that's what's happening with this now. And there's a lot more to this story that will be, be coming out in these coming days. And one of the first things these activists needed was an attorney. What do we do? What's the right thing to do? We don't want to break any laws. How do we handle this? They needed the kind of attorneys that you are studying to be, namely not those, and this is an affliction, by the way, particularly pronounced within the, I'm not going to say within the church, because the church is the body of Christ filled with his spirit doing wondrous things, but within let me put it this way, bureaucratic advisors to the institutional church, let's use that phrase, there is an affliction, which is the kind of attorney who will basically say, well, my mission is to make sure my client doesn't get into any trouble, and therefore to practically anything and everything they dream up that they want to do. I'm going to tell them why they can't do it. And I'm going to be so, so, so very, very cautious and urge them to be so very, very cautious that when you're on the receiving end of that, one of the conclusions you come to is, you know what, I might as well just sit down and shut up and stay in a corner somewhere and I won't get into any trouble. There's a certain truth in that, except it doesn't take account of what trouble you might get into with God, who's trying to fill you with his spirit to go out and change things. So the kind of attorneys we need are the ones that are going to come up to the activists and say, I understand your mission. In fact, I embrace your mission. We are in it together. So I'm going to give you all the guidance that you need so that you can be, yes, protected and so that you can defend yourself if challenges come along, which they very likely will 
with just about anything we do in this movement. But that's the kind of, I mean, that's one of the immediate things that they needed and that they sought. Where can we find someone to help us know what to do and what not to do when we find the bodies of aborted babies? And we want to give them a proper burial. Now, some years ago, I pulled it out uh, here before coming, uh, I had an article in the Ave Maria Law Review. This was back all the way in 2007. How law students and attorneys can help the pro-life movement. I went back to the article. A lot of it is still very valid, but there have been developments in the movement since then that would amplify the advice I gave back then. I want to repeat some of the things that I had put in this article way back then and uh, amplify some other things in the light of what's been developing in the uh, pro-life movement. So first of all, we are at the point, and I have a literature on that table in one of the pieces of literature I have, 10 points to understand about the Dobbs case. Now, you would understand this more than the average citizen, obviously. I want to refer to you, as I talk to you tonight, we'll refer you to a bunch of websites. Uh, one of them is SupremeCourtVictory.com. Uh, that's a website we have that whenever there is a Supreme Court case on abortion, and there's lots of them, as you know, over these decades, uh, we use that site, A, to help people understand the case, and B, to conduct a national prayer campaign for success in that case. Done the same with the Dobbs case. We've been, we've been very involved in the Dobbs case. Uh, we have one of the many briefs, more briefs, uh, submitted in this case on the pro-life side than for any case in, in the history of uh, the legal fight over abortion. And they are, when you take these briefs all together, and you know what? Read them. Take the time to read them all. They are a marvelous summary of the pro-life arguments that we've been making for 50 years. A tremendous kaleidoscope uh, of, of arguments and evidence, which you'll see on SupremeCourtVictory.com, not only um, uh, the prayer campaign, as I mentioned, but you'll see some interviews that I uh, taped with, uh, that I broadcast on our broadca daily broadcast system with uh, various authors of various briefs that went into uh, this case. The thrust of many of the arguments is not only that Roe v. Wade is immoral, not only that it is unconstitutional, but that it is now simply obsolete. If people want to talk about the overturning of Roe v. Wade, one of the things the briefs in this case bring out is that Roe has been overturned in reality, by the development of science, the development of law, and various developments in the culture. If you look back at the circumstances that prevailed at the time of Roe, and look at what options society provided for a single mom, they were nothing like they are today. We didn't have any online opportunities to pursue education or careers from working at home, you know, while raising a baby, you know, opportunities through the internet and various things like that weren't there. The pregnancy centers weren't around. We, I just came back this last 
four or five days, I was in Jacksonville for the annual conference of Heartbeat International, which as you may know, is one of the largest networks of pregnancy centers. I speak every year at this conference. We had close to 1,500 pregnancy center directors and staff there for several days. And we had numerous hundreds of workshops for them. These centers weren't around at the time of Roe v. Wade. Uh, and now they outnumber the abortion facilities by almost a margin of four to one. It's fabulous. Developments in the law, you know about the safe haven laws, they were even mentioned in the oral arguments uh, in Dobbs by Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, developments in the law, developments in the culture, developments in science, do we need to even remind ourselves of that? We know the unborn child. We know the unborn child. You know, when you can see the unborn child, and we can see them better now than we could at the time of Roe v. Wade, once you can see them, you can diagnose them and treat them. So the development of technology visualizing the child has led to the development of an entire field of medicine for fetal diagnosis, therapy, and even fetal surgery. Uh, I've been privileged to go to some of the conferences of the fetal surgeons around America. And these people are just, you know, well, of course the baby is a patient. Maternal fetal medicine, uh, the doctors, they know they're dealing with two patients. Some of them still have the idea by amazing mental gymnastics that it's okay to kill one of their two patients. But, but you know, that, that, that's on another plane. But it's just on the scientific plane, they're there, all right. They, it's clear as day that these, who these babies are. So the, the argument that Roe now is simply obsolete is coming through loud and clear in Dobbs. God bless the state of Mississippi for not only insisting that their law be upheld, but for going further and saying, you know what, Roe and Casey, they don't work. They never did work. The unworkability of these decisions, okay, and you understand exactly what that means, is well documented in these briefs. Judges on the super, justices on the Supreme Court and judges in the, in the courts throughout our land, just completely confused. What in the world do I do with, this, with abortion policy? You guys are telling me things like, you know, undue burden. I don't know what in the world that means. Do you know what that means? They don't know what it means. Because Supreme Court cases on abortion contradict each other in terms of what undue burden means. This is all, this is all so confused and confusing. And in the process of confusing the jurisprudence on abortion, the justices exhaust themselves by having to take all these cases. Every time a state wants to make a move about abortion, everybody realizes this isn't going to be judged by the, uh, by the uh, duly elected legislators who can have hearings, who can collect evidence, who can propose amendments, who can listen to the input of their people who can be voted out of office if the people don't like what they're doing and bring in somebody else and do it better. They can go through all that process, and they do, and the legislators of Mississippi did, and they can look at the changed science, and they can look at the development in law, and they can look at the changes in the culture, and they can say, based on all this, we're going to set this law 
as policy for our state. And then you know what the district court did? They put their hands over their eyes. They put their hands over their ears. And despite all this work that the legislators did, they said, well, we're not gonna listen to any of it. It's all completely irrelevant. The science, the evidence, the testimony, the, 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 the more evidence we have than ever that abortion hurts women. No, we're not, they didn't even, they said it all doesn't matter. They only asked one question. What was that question? Is this law prohibiting abortion before viability? One question. And based on that one question, whose answer in this case is quite clear, of course it does. It's protecting the baby starting at 15 weeks. At the time of Roe, viability was around 28 weeks, though so they said, well, it could go as early as 24. Now it's more like 22. But the, but the, uh, the court said, well, these are, this is 15, so it's obviously pre-viability. Sorry, doesn't pass constitutional muster. We don't have to go any further. That's absurd. You study the history of Roe. Was the argument about viability present in the law that was being challenged out of Texas or in the law out of Georgia in the companion case, Dobie Bolton? Was viability anywhere in those laws? No. How about the briefs that were submitted to the court in the case of Roe and Doe? Was viability discussed? The answer is no. What about the oral arguments? And you know Roe was argued twice. December, December of 71 and October of 72. By the way, a little historical tidbit. The oral arguments in Dobbs occurred on December 1st, 2021. Do you realize that that was almost to the day, 50 years since the first round of oral arguments in Roe v. Wade? Almost to the day, the Roe v. Wade arguments were December 13th of 1971. December 1st of 2021, you have the arguments in this case, which could reverse Roe v. Wade. A, a, a fascinating historical dynamic going on here. But it was argued twice. Did the concept of viability come up for discussion in any of the oral arguments? Again, the answer is no. Did the viability appear in the first drafts of the decision circulated among the justices? It did not. In fact, they were on a course for a while of saying that abortion would be permitted only in the first trimester. Of course, that's the, the, the idea, the mistaken idea that that's what Roe says circulates this day to this day as the dominant understanding of the decision, which of course is, is wrong permits abortion throughout pregnancy, gives the states a little bit of leeway in the final months, but then the subsequent Supreme Court decisions on abortion dismantled that anyway, dismantled that framework anyway. But the point is viability got thrown in about a month before the decision was issued. In the, the, the conversations between the justices and the memos they were sending back and forth. Oh, this is probably a good line to draw. Where in the history or the structure or the text of the Constitution is this concept? Nowhere. 
And you're going to tell me that, that, that it's unconstitutional to protect babies before liability? According to what constitution? The constitution of your, your imagination? What are you talking about? And so this is what the justices are really seriously looking at right now. Because when they accepted this case, right, they accepted one question. One question. And when we saw that question, I'm telling you, we started, I did, and I started jumping for joy. I said, yes, this is exactly the question that they have to answer. And the fact that they were willing to answer it right from the beginning gave our whole movement confidence that this case was going to bring us a step in the right, at least a step in the right direction. Maybe a very, very big step. The question being, is a prohibition of pre-viability elective abortion always unconstitutional? That's a pretty good question to ask, isn't it? With, it seems, a pretty obvious answer. So the question is, when, when they answer that, and they say no, then what? And it seems to me that the current makeup of the court doesn't want to legislate, it seems to me. They don't want to legislate. So if you're going to say no to that question, and therefore say to the states, you may protect these babies prior to viability. Well, then the next thing that the legislators are going to ask is, under what circumstances? And until when? How early? Does the court really want to draw another line? Do they want to draw another line? If they want to keep themselves busy with abortion cases, they could. If they want to be seen as legislating from the bench, they could. But why not simply say, uh, well, we're not going to draw a line. We don't see anything unconstitutional about protecting these children. Go right ahead. Be, be our guest. And you see, here's the thing. In terms of the public argument, what is the other side already yelling and screaming about? Oh, the court's going to take away our right to abortion. Well, the court's looking to do no such thing. You think it's okay to, 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 to dismember and decapitate these children? Make your case. Make your case. If the court says the legislatures can decide, well, then we say to the other side, go ahead and make your case. Make your case to the legislators. Make your case to the public. Why it's okay to have abortion. And if you can convince them, they can still keep it legal. As they just did in New Jersey, you know, these extreme laws that don't represent Roe v. Wade. You see what they say? We've got, to, we've got to push back against this notion, oh, we want to codify Roe v. Wade. No, Brandon stands up there and says, we want to codify Roe v. Wade. And you know, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't know what he's talking about any, any of the time anyway. But the point is that he, 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 this is not codifying Roe v. Wade. When, when they talk to me about codifying Roe v. Wade, I said, oh, really? I says, well, so what, pro what provision in this law that you want to uh, create to codify Roe uh, gives the states the, uh, uh, the, 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 the opportunity to protect the babies in the later stages of, of pregnancy? And, and, and which provision of this law talks about the interests of the state? in the developing baby and in the health of the mother. And which provision of this law says what Roe says, that the right to have an abortion is not absolute? Where in this law does it say, well, this, this is not codifying Roe. This is going to the absolute extreme that you can go when it comes to abortion. To the absolute extreme. 
And, uh, you know, a number of states have done it, you know, New York and New Jersey and several others. And, 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 and in the event of Roe being formally reversed, a number of states will go that way and a number of states will go the other way. It's actually about half and half. And actually, it's, it's, it favors our side, really. So, because there's about, it's about a 2020 and 2010 division, basically. 2020-10 meaning that 20 would, would lean in the pro-life direction or, or immediately begin protecting the unborn. 20 would be going in the other, opposite direction. And the others, nine or 10 states, four included, would be in a position where we could craft effective pro-life legislation. The climate would be there to do so. A lot of the battles that would follow in a case like that, and this is one of the key needs uh, right now of the um, uh, pro-life movement when it comes to legal help that you could give. One of the key needs is simply going to be advising pro-life groups, pro-life activists, pro-life um, strategists, advising them of the dynamics of state law in their particular states, and also advising them in the inevitable battles that really have already begun over whether a state constitution has a right to abortion. So if the Supreme Court says the federal constitution does not, nevertheless, the pro-aborts are going to say, okay, well, you know, we love, you know, one of the favorite places, you know where one of the favorite places of pro-abortion people is? Behind the robes of a judge including the pro-abortion uh, uh, legislators, they love to hide behind the robes of the judge. Oh, the court took it out of our hands. You know, we can't do anything about this. And that's what a favorable Dobbs decision would take away from this. Can't hide behind them anymore, guys. You can't hide behind the judge. Make the decision. Legislate. What does a legislator, what does a legislator take an oath to uphold? The Constitution. The same constitution that the Supreme Court justice takes an oath to oath. It's the same constitution. It's the same kind of oath. So the they have a right to interpret it. They don't take an oath to interpret the constitution as the court understands it. They take an oath to con update, uh, uphold the constitution in the only way that they can uphold it, which is how they understand it. People are going to be uh, battling in the court system of their respective states. They're going to need help to understand what's going on. They're going to need help to craft the arguments. They're going to need people who, from a legal mind, can read those constitutions and their histories and show the people why it's such a silly idea to think that after however many years, decades, uh, over a century, that state has had its constitution, that suddenly someone discovered what nobody else saw was there, a right to an abortion. And, uh, but the legal arguments are going to have to be made and you're going to have to help people make them. That's going to be one of the key battlefronts. The other thing, of course, flowing from this will be, if in fact the court says it's up to the states to decide if they're going to protect the unborn, there's going to then be the need to develop the arguments for phase two. And phase two, of course, is... Would we ever think it to be reasonable to say that killing an adult was okay in New York, but not okay in Alabama? Shooting someone in the street, 
whatever method of killing. Killing the innocent cannot be right in one state, wrong in another state. We have inherited our system of law with the understanding from the common law that there are natural rights. We see it right there in the Declaration. That they're given by God and that governments exist to secure those rights. We've obviously lost the ability in many sectors of society to even understand or acknowledge that that's the case. Getting back to that is so critical and, and developing the, the, the argument that, wait a minute, there's got to be more than this. I am, you know, I mean, some people will go so far as to say, oh, well, you know, I'm not going to celebrate if Dobbs says it's going to leave it to the states because, you know, that doesn't go far enough and, you know, you can't have murder okay in one state, not okay in another. Yeah, I, I agree, but I'm going to be celebrating a whole lot, okay, a whole lot. And it's going to be caused, I mean, this reversing Roe v. Wade is something that people in this movement have been longing for, dreaming about, working for, hoping they would live to see for, for decades and decades. Of course it's a cause. Don't, don't let people short circuit the joy and celebration we should have. We know that that's not the final step. And it's okay to remind people that it is, but we have to celebrate with great joy if this is as big a victory as many expect it will be. But the, but the case obviously has to be developed further that, you know, the 14th Amendment, ironically, which the other side uses to try to find a right to abortion, actually has a right to life. If, you're, if you cannot be deprived of life, there's a reason for that. There's a reason why the, the protection is, is in favor of life. And the argument needs to be developed that ultimately, and, and, and this is made clear in the, uh, for example, in the uh, pastoral plan for pro-life activities that the US bishops have articulated for decades. It's clear in the Republican Party platform when it talks about the rights of the unborn child. What's clear in both of those places, uh, and, and in many other places, is that the ultimate goal here in terms of public policy is a constitutional amendment, securing the rights of the unborn, making it clear, we should say it this way, a constitutional amendment and clarifying the fact that what we have inherited in our system of laws and our constitution is, it demands, requires, requires, the protection of the unborn. Can we get there in one step? I don't think so. I don't think the court is ready to say that now. So let's take the one step that it might be ready to say, and let, but, but let's not forget that now we gotta to work towards that. And, then, and this is again, back to what you can do for the movement. We gotta be developing that case. There's been some good things written about it, as I'm sure you know. We gotta develop those arguments. We've got to develop them and, 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 and then find ways to present them to the courts as we go on the offensive. And you know, instead of the pro boards constantly challenging you know, pro-life laws, uh, we go in and we start challenging the pro-abortion laws, and of course we do that, but to do it even more, so as to create the jurisprudence that could eventually lead to the point where both the courts, see what we have to do in order to get a constitutional amendment, of course, we've got to get the courts as well as the legislatures on our side on this, and meanwhile, of course, creating the culture of life and the convincing of, of um, uh, minds and hearts to get to that 
and also the poor. Couple of other things about needs in the pro-life movement. Since the Gosnell case back in 2013, we have had more of an awareness that not only are unborn babies being killed, but born babies are being killed. Now, Gosnell still sits in prison today because we actually saw the laws enforced in Pennsylvania that prohibit abortions beyond uh, 24 weeks and that certainly prohibit the killing of a born baby. But the protections for a baby who survives abortion aren't adequate. You know the situation, first of all, it differs from state to state how much protection there is. Now, first of all, how would a baby survive an abortion? Of course, if it's a dismemberment abortion, they wouldn't. Sometimes what an abortionist does to, to, to avoid what they call they call it the dreaded complication. When a child that they're being paid to kill comes out alive, they, that's one of the last things they want to happen. Of course, the very last thing they want to happen is for people to see what an abortion looks like, which goes back to what we were saying before. Remember, remember these, these scenarios on, on, on certain social media sites and people over these years, have, and recent years actually, have, have, have boasted, oh, I'm gonna film my abortion. Remember that woman who filmed her abortion? She said, oh, look how, you know, look how easy it is. This is the whole point they're trying to make. Look, I'm smiling, look, it's not no big deal. I challenged her when she did that a few years ago. I said, you didn't film your abortion, you didn't do so. First of all, I'm gonna presume that what you were doing there in that video was actually having an abortion. I have no way to prove that. I'll just give you the benefit of the doubt. But you did not film the abortion. You filmed your face. You want to film your abortion? Put a camera inside your body. And let's watch what happens to that baby. You want to film your abortion? Be my guest. I want to see it. I want America to see it. She didn't film her abortion. That's the last thing they would dare even think about doing. So that's the last thing the abortionist wants to happen. The next to the last thing is a baby born alive. How could it possibly happen? Some of these abortionists try to prevent it from happening by inserting um, a digoxin into the baby's heart to stop the heart. But you have to remember something about these abortionists. They are largely untrained, careless, unscrupulous people. They don't know what they're doing most of the time. This is a corrupt industry that has a lot of practitioners that don't know their left hand from their right. They mess it up so frequently. They're sure, they're inserting digoxin or they don't know what they're doing. And it doesn't work, or they don't put a sufficient amount, or they don't wait long enough. Babies are born alive. Now, the CDC tracks some of this, states including Florida, track it, but only about nine states track it. So we have no idea, hundreds of documented cases just from the states that track it, but we have no idea how frequently it's happening, but we know it happens, okay. And we also know that again, for two reasons, because of the difference in state laws and some of these radical pro-abortion bills that have recently come about in these last few years, 
not only take away any restrictions on the killing of the unborn, but they weaken the protections in place for the born, those that might survive. On the federal level, you may remember that George W. Bush signed uh, into law the um, Born Alive Infants Protection Act. But it's a defining law. It's a, it's a definitional law. It doesn't have any enforcement. It doesn't have any, any penalties. It doesn't have, uh, it doesn't, it, it, what it does is, it, it, what it does is important. It defines that this child born alive at any stage of gestation is a person under the law. But then it doesn't go fur further to say, okay, well, therefore, if such a baby were to be born alive, here's what must be done or not done. So, so it has to be supplemented. And therefore, the Republicans in Congress introduced the Abortion Survivors Protection Act a few years ago to strengthen the provisions of federal law for the protection of babies that might be born alive. And the Democrats didn't even want the debate. They certainly don't want the law, but just as much they don't want the debate. And so they have refused to bring it up for debate. This Congress and the last Congress refused to bring it up. The Republicans launched a discharge petition. And if you know what that is, if half of the members, if more than half of the members of the House sign a discharge petition, then a bill can be debated and voted on even over the objections of the party leadership that's in the majority. I know from the last Congress that the Democrat members, this is, the, this is split right down party lines, by the way. Okay. All the Republicans, both times the discharge petition was introduced in the current Congress and the last Congress, all the Republicans signed it. A couple of the Democrats did. They were berated by Nancy Pelosi to their face. Why did you sign that discharge petition? It's like, What's going on here? What is wrong with this? We want to protect the baby who's outside the womb. How in the world are they so passionate about not even having a debate about what is going on? Well, one of the things might be this. They understand the value of a law like this better than perhaps many people on our side. Because if there were a strong law that said you will protect, under penalty of law, a baby who was marked for abortion, but then survived. You will protect that baby after birth. Then you have introduced into the law the following principle. That a baby marked for abortion can, in fact, be protected over and above the choice of the mother. Think about this for a minute. Even though the baby now is born, not unborn, the baby was marked for abortion, scheduled for abortion. But the law can still have a role in protecting that baby. Well, once you, you, you admit that, then the argument becomes even stronger than it already is to say, well, what's the difference between the baby now and five minutes earlier? Or five months earlier? Of course, there is no way to, to make a difference there. So their case begins to unravel. It also introduces another principle, 
having to do here with the separation of powers. If in fact you grant that the Supreme Court found a right to abortion in the Constitution, does not it stand to reason that the Supreme Court finding such a right cannot prevent the Congress then from activating that right and in the process of doing so, setting limits to it. In other words, what would be the rationale for the Supreme Court to find a constitutional right, but then for Congress not to be able to legislate on it, and in legislating on it, to define its limits? And to say, as this bill would have Congress say, that the Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade could not have meant when it found a right to abortion. It could not have meant that a baby born alive could not be protected. What do we need right now in the movement? We need a light to shine on this whole area because I'll tell you, I participated in the hearings. They were, I don't like the term shadow hearing, but they were. there was a hearing that wasn't held in the Congress because the Democrats didn't want it. So a whole bunch of Republican lawmakers went into a uh, went into a, a separate to went to a separate place and had a hearing with medical experts and statistical experts talking about how babies are in fact born alive and they went through the whole thing and they advocated for this bill. We need a light to shine on this because it's not getting adequate attention, and it's something that really, really wakes people up when they, when, they, when they come to see what's happening. Studying the legal dimensions of this, making it clear to people why the existing protections are not sufficient, showing people a, what a law like this would or would not do to the so-called right to abortion, and so forth. We need your expertise in this. The movement needs your expertise in this. Another big area that the movement needs your legal help with has to do, of course, with the freedom to make our case in the first place. And the intersection that we're also aware of between defending the right to life and defending religious liberty is so strong and so clear. And it has a lot of reasons why it's so intimately connected. The reason is not that the pro-life position is solely a religious uh, issue or position. It isn't. But even the Catholic position on abortion starts with human reason, right? So I mean, it's not like you know we we uh, even religiously are only using divine revelation and scripture to make our case. But the fact is that, ironically, the other side, the Catholics for choice. You know, when I was first starting out with Priest for Life, it was like their their magazine. You know, I saw their magazine coming out, and, and we, you know what the title of their magazine was. Conscience. The title of the magazine of Catholics was like Conscience. They were always the ones, decades ago, running around talking about the right to conscience. Now they're its number one enemy. People don't have the right to conscience. If you read the platform of the Democrat Party and their associated memoranda and articles of explanation, you will see that their view of what we would call religious liberty, the right to practice our faith, they view it as what? Discrimination. 
This is a big problem. And if you see now what social media tech companies, some of them, because I, I know, you know, where's the person in charge of social media? We gotta talk later on, because we, our ministry, we just, we put a lot into social media. It's a high priority for us. And the new platforms that are right, Getter, right, Getter, Truth Social, President Trump's uh, platform, these are places where Parler, another one, it's not, not as big now, uh, Parler, uh, but Getter, Getter is doing well, Truth Social is launched now. You can say what you want. And that's a familiar sound to our ears, isn't it? You can actually say what you want. Freedom of speech. The battle over religious liberty and conscience is summarized in the Gospel of John. The light came into the world, and some preferred darkness for fear that their deeds would be exposed. Those who go towards the light are not afraid because their deeds are done in God. If you go to the darkness, it's not just that you don't want to be in the light. It's that you hate the light. The reason you don't choose the light is that you don't want it to expose your deeds. John's gospel doesn't put the battle between light and darkness in the terms of concepts, but in the terms of deeds. So those who are doing wicked deeds, they love the darkness. We started with that idea, right? Exposing, showing these babies, you know, get the babies out of the trash, show them to people. What that means is that those who are in darkness, they want to, they just don't want to be in darkness. They want to, they want to kill the light. They want to shut out the light. That's what this battle is all about. Freedom to speak, freedom to practice our religion. We were, we at Priest for Life were one of the uh, cases that was consolidated at the Supreme Court under the, during the Obama-Biden years on the, uh, on the HHS mandate, the contraceptive mandate. And uh, we, uh, we learned a lot during that, as we all, we all did, watching those cases progress. And by the way, I think we, we have to be careful not to do ourselves, I, I was kind of sounding the alarm during those years. To, to, I mean, it's a powerful, powerful uh, visual, okay, when you see the little sisters of the poor, you know, being forced by this, you know, powerful government administration to pay for contraceptives. I mean, it's absurd, and it's also a very powerful, evocative um, image and battle. But we have to be careful that we don't let people lose sight of the fact that this mandate applied to almost every employer in America, not just something having to do with the religious sisters, every employer in America, just about. And the, plain, the, the petitioners in the case that got to the Supreme Court was a consolidation of seven cases, one of which was ours. And the, uh, those individual seven cases had multiple petitioners. Altogether, there were 38 of them. Universities, Christian and Catholic alike, ministries like Priests for Life, the Little Sisters of the Poor, various different organizations, all just trying to live out their faith, none of them trying to impose their faith, and them being told that they had to choose between following their faith and following the law. And one of the most instructive things for me going through the whole 
process in the district court, the appellate court, and then the Supreme Court was to see how these judges and, and, and how the Obama administration were trying to tell us what our faith says and means. I mean, this was literally the most, the most offensive thing about, about the whole process was we're sitting there in court explaining, you know, here's why we can't, even though you're telling us you're giving us an exception, you know, we can't sign that form because it makes us complicit, right? That was the argument. And they said, no, 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 don't worry, you don't have to worry about that. It's like, who are you to tell me I don't have to worry about that? I'm telling you what my faith teaches me. I'm telling you what my conscience says. I'm telling you what I have decided, I believe, about morality. You as a judge, you as a court, your role is not to judge the reasonableness of my faith. Your job is to protect my freedom to live that faith. And they, and they, they, just, they just couldn't get it. They couldn't get it. So much could they not get it. Now you remember what the Supreme Court decided in that, in that case. They actually didn't decide it. They said, well, first of all, they did vacate the, the, the negative decisions against us in the lower courts. But then they said to the Obama administration and to us, to all the other petitioners, they basically said, you know, reviewing all these arguments, we believe you guys can work it out. So go sit down and work it out. That's what they said. So we did sit down. We're, after the court came down with that, we did. We had all kinds of meetings with the Obama administration. Thick-headed. They didn't get it. They didn't want to get it. They just couldn't bring themselves to understand that we are believers who believe we're doing something wrong here and should not be forced by the law to do it. Don't try to judge the reasonableness of our faith. You're not going to succeed in doing that anyway. Just protect our right to live it. That we were making very very little progress. And then somebody named Donald Trump got elected. That's what freed us from the mandate. That and that alone. He freed us from the mandate. And brothers and sisters, had the election gone the other way, I, I, I say to people, you know, when I uh, people ask me, oh, why do you support President Trump so much? One of the things I say to them is just very simple. If he weren't where he is, we wouldn't be where we are. This mandate was set to, to, to just literally destroy all kinds of ministries. And when some dioceses, this is a whole other area. So what I'm saying is obviously you know the role that you have to help people understand exactly the issue I just articulated, exactly the challenge that people face today about just the freedom to believe and live our belief. But... The other thing this leads right into, logically, is, okay, the church has lots of freedom. Are we going to use it? When it comes to, and, and, and one of my books that I have here tonight is called Abolishing Abortion. I don't know if you've, any of you have read it. It came out in 2015. Uh, it's basically a strategy memo. And uh, much of the strategy that I laid out in this book, actually, the pro-life movement has exactly... 
uh, have been implementing in these recent years. But one of the, in the middle section of the book, but basically I tried to do what the book was to say, what's the next step the state has to take in ending abortion, and what's the next step the church has to take? And one of the big obstacles I analyzed in terms of the church is the Johnson Amendment. And I want to recommend to you, you want to really help the pro-life movement, help churches, pastors, and uh, not-for-profit organizations understand what they can, in fact, do with elections. Because it is a big problem. I, I was saying earlier about, you know, the, the two types of attorneys, you know, one of them says, no, 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 you, you, don't do anything, don't do anything, don't get in trouble. And the other one says, you, I'm going to help you carry out your mission, and if you get in trouble, I'm going to defend you. Those are two very different approaches. So we need more of the second approach advising the churches, because what we get out of the churches, you know, first of all, the Johnson Amendment, first of all, President Trump in 2017 said, we're not enforcing it anymore. And his executive order has not been, of, of all, all, all the executive orders that the Brandon administration reversed the, 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 from President Trump's era, this one wasn't, it wasn't among them. They didn't reverse. Do you know why they didn't reverse? They were like, say, well, why the heck should we keep our, you know, Democrat-loving pastors from inviting us in and give, you know, giving the sermon? You know, what, what, what benefit would it be to them to reverse that executive order? So it still stands. They're not enforcing the Johnson Amendment. Now, aside from that little fact, the constitutionality of that amendment is an important question. For you to analyze, for you to talk about, for you to study, for you to make the case. And then, whether it even was ever intended to apply to churches is an important question. Because the amendment doesn't say anything about churches. And there's reason to think that Lyndon B. Johnson, when he threw that thing in there without any legislative debate, uh, and for obvious personal reasons against groups that were threatening his reelection didn't intend for it to apply to churches. So all of that is worth your study and helping pro-life groups understand. But then there's another dimension too. And I was as respectful as I could be in this book when I pointed this out. But as priests, you know, we get a lot of, we get these, you know, memos coming to us from, uh, from the diocese. And they say things like this, now I'm quoting. Do not appear to favor or discredit any political party or candidate. I want you to think about that for a minute. In our, this is a memo, okay, from a diocese to us priests saying, that we cannot, in our teaching, in our preaching, in what we put in the parish bulletin, and anything we do as a priest, we cannot even appear to favor or discredit a political party or candidate. Okay, so I have one of the things we put out uh, that you may have seen over the years is a, a simple little comparison it's a voter guide, but not about candidates, it's about parties. It's a comparison of the positions on certain key issues uh, taken from the, just all this does is quotes the platforms of the two major parties. There's no editorial 
um, content here at all. Now, if it's a C4 friend, this is a C3 friendly document. And by the way, that's one of the great things you can do for pro-life groups, you know, write the letter of attestation that, yes, this qualifies, in my opinion, as a C3. They need that, the pastors need to see that letter. So we have a letter like that, a couple of letters like that, pertaining to this document. And it's like, you know, because if it were a C4 document, then you could put a little smiley face, you know, on the top of one column and, you know, frowning emoji on the other one, or, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down, you know, whatever way you want to indicate one is better than the other. This doesn't indicate one is better than the other. Okay, so just the information. And so what it says here from the platforms is that the Republican Party says the unborn child has a right to life, has to be protected, cannot be infringed. Democrats, abortion itself is a right, should not be limited. Okay, what does the church say? Well, church says something that sounds a little bit like what the Republican platform says. Child has a right to life, cannot be infringed. Now listen, we don't stand on the platform, and we as priests, we as a church, don't stand on the platform of the Republican Party or the Democrat Party. We stand on the platform of Jesus Christ, which is unchanging. But it's also clear, and it applies to you know, real things that people do, including political choices. And therefore, we stand up and we say, the child must be protected. In law, not just in culture or in the family life, in law. Okay. Now go back to that advice. Do not even appear to be favoring or discrediting a political party or candidate. So I get up and I say, you know, if you say that there's a right to an abortion, you're violating God's law. This is damaging, this is destructive. In fact, John Paul II, by the way, today's the anniversary of his death. And I'm gonna bless you at the end of tonight. I have a relic of John Paul with me, some of his blood. Uh, it was given to us at Priestland by Cardinal Jeevich, who was the secretary, as you know. I worked under him in the Vatican for a couple of years, a card of John Paul, so I'm gonna bless you with his relic. Don't let me forget, I have it over there in my bag. But here's the point I'm making. Uh, so we stand on the platform of Jesus Christ, and sometimes it corresponds to, to what one party is saying at one point in time. Sometimes it corresponds is against what another party is saying. And if tomorrow the Republican and Democrat parties decided to swap platforms with one another and change their positions on every single issue, what would change about our message? Absolutely nothing. And that's why that's how I make the argument. We are being nonpartisan. And when I make my, when I do my teachings, when I when I speak into the world of elections and politics, as I do constantly, without apology, I'm acting out of a pastor's obligation. I'm acting out of a religious mission to apply the word of God to society. Now we have a history of this, and recently, just the other a couple of weeks ago. We celebrate, it's not on the universal church calendar, but you look up Blessed Clemens von Galen, you remember him, uh, Bishop of Munster, and when the Nazis came into power, he preached, he was famous for three powerful sermons he gave one summer against this political party because of two reasons, their suppression of innocent human life and their suppression of the freedom of the church. We've got the same problems in the Democrat party today. And, <laughs> they can't, they, they beatify these, these guys that, that preach about it and then they punish us when we try to preach about it today. It is absurd. 
Maximilian Kolbe, here's a priest. Everybody knows why he, you know, famous story. Oh, he gave his life in exchange for the prisoner that they, you know, was a husband and father, and oh, please, and, and, and he took his place. Okay, good. It was a great act of heroism, right? But the question is, why was he in the camp in the first place? What got him there? And that's a part of the story that not enough people remember. From his monastery, he was publishing and broadcasting against the political party because of their suppression of human life and their suppression of the freedom of the church. And here's a priest that we, we canonize. So the point I'm making is this, that if I were to follow advice that says do not even appear to be critical of a party or a candidate, the only way I could follow that would be to shut up about the gospel. The only way I could not appear to be favoring or criticizing a political party or candidate, and that's not my motive. My motive is to proclaim the platform of Jesus Christ. But the only way I could appear not to be doing those other things is to keep quiet. And that's not an option. So uh, what I'm saying to you is uh, we honestly, many, many good, I mean, I head up a group called Priests for Life, right? We try to help the priests to talk about these things. And I can't tell you how many priests I, I have had to encourage and counsel and listen to and answer their questions. And they're sitting there talking and they have tears in their eyes because they're burning with passion about wanting to defend life and, 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 and help change the culture of death into the culture of life. And they feel they're, they're, they're trapped. They feel they're in such a dilemma because they're literally being told to shut up. Well, but the people have asked me from the beginning of our ministry, why don't we hear our priests talking more about this issue? Well, you know, the sad conclusion I've come to that is a big part of the answer to that question is the reason you don't hear them talking about these issues is that they're being told not to. This has got to change. One of the ways it can change is the legal expertise of people like you clarifying for the church, and not just the church, but all the, the pro-life organizations in whatever communities you will serve, clarifying for them that, hey, you have a lot more freedom than you think you have vis-a-vis -vis the law relating to elections and politics. And you, you know this better than I do. We have a lot more freedom than we think we do. The best way to defend it is to exercise it. Do it. We try to do that. We're a C3 organization. And we try to push as hard as we can to show others that, yes, you can do this without, you know, without getting in trouble with the law. And... Uh, we, we can't do it without you. We can't do it with the legal input and the advice that you can provide. So those are some of the needs based on some of the developments in the pro-life movement. There's lots more, but I'm going to stop there because I want to hear your comments and questions. But just know how much we in the uh, leadership of the movement appreciate you and what you do and the profession you represent because we could not do any of this without you. And together, we're going to see many great victories for life in Dobbs and well beyond that. God bless
Rev. Jim Garlow, and we have Father Frank Pavone. Someplace they're in the audience, so I appreciate you. I appreciate you. Follow him, Father Frank Pavone, F.R. Frank Pavone, on Twitter. He is the National Director of Priests for Life. Please go to priestsforlife.org. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.